Acts 21. Today's sermon will cover verses 27 to 36. We're continuing in a sub-series in the book of Acts called Paul in Jerusalem. And as I've tried to highlight each time, Paul's life is a parallel of Christ's life. Even Paul's suffering is a parallel of Christ's suffering. And before we feel pity for Paul, let us be reminded that this is one of Paul's greatest joys. Paul said in Philippians 3 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And here our apostle will indeed suffer for the cause of Christ. Acts 27, verses, uh, 21, verses 27 to 36, the Bible says this. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps... He was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying, away with him. Let's ask God's blessing. Oh, Father, as we look into this ancient but inspired and infallible text, help us, Lord, by the power of the Spirit to understand what's happening and apply it to our lives for your honor and your glory. Amen. We've all been there. You know an environment that turns hostile. None of us like being in hostile environments. Those are the kinds of environments where you can cut the tension with a knife. And in hostile environments, people are very quickly moved to anger. Nefarious motives are assumed behind every question, every statement. In a hostile environment, there is hardly any peace and mostly enmity. Because of this, people often seek to leave hostile work environments or hostile relationships or hostile families. We all probably have been there where we need a little space to cool down from the hostility. And even if you've never never been um, personally experiencing something like this, we all know of hostile environments in the world. I don't think any of us, for example, are clamoring to take an all-inclusive vacation to North Korea or Afghanistan. Matter of fact, such places are on the United States do-not-travel list because they're hostile environments. 
What do you find in these hostile environments? You find hatred of outsiders. You find no tolerance for other ideas. You find threats of violence, imprisonment, and death. And so it only makes sense that our human tendency would be to run away from hostile environments. But we've seen in our text over the past few weeks, as we looked at the book of Acts, that the main character here, Paul, actually runs into the hostile environment. He desires to make haste to be there. He was warned repeatedly, don't go to Jerusalem. You'll be bound. You'll lose your freedom. Only imprisonments and persecution await you. And yet Paul, as we saw a few weeks ago, was resolved in his spirit to go. And as we saw last week, Paul made it to Jerusalem with the plan to show the world that he respects the law of the Jewish people. But he comes as a wanted man. Lies and rumors about him have swirled. The prophet Agabus showed him that if he goes to Jerusalem, he would wind up bound in chains. And yet we have been following his journey. We saw in our last passage how he and the elders of Jerusalem devised a plan to demonstrate that those rumors were false. But as you know, in hostile environments, there's no reasonable arguing. There's no way to explain your case. When people are dead set against you, they will find a reason to hate you. And thus, in today's passage, the Apostle Paul will now fulfill that which was predicted about his life. He will suffer persecution. He will be arrested. He will be bound. But the question remains for us, why? Why did Paul subject himself to this? And what hope is there as we look at this? What can we learn from Paul's arrest? Well, as we turn our attention to this passage, verses 27 to 36, we see some stages of persecution. And I think these stages sort of can be true of many, time, many examples of persecution throughout history and around the world. Reminder uh, about last week, or last time I preached in this section, Paul comes to Jerusalem, he meets with the elders of the church, James and others. Um, they want to dispel the rumors that Paul is against the law. So they say, go, take these men with you, go into the temple, uh, accompany them as they make a vow, pay for the vow so that everyone who's there will know Paul respects the law of the Jews. That's where we find Paul. And the vow, which takes about seven days, is about to end. And that's where we pick it up in verse 27. And verse 27 says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Now, there's going to be a little confusion here because Paul is Jewish and the Jerusalem church is Jewish. And it says in verse 27, the Jews from Asia. So we have to distinguish between believing Jews and unbelieving Jews. These were unbelieving Jews. These were Jews who believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And ever since Paul's time in Ephesus, they have targeted Paul. They have spread rumors about Paul, saying he doesn't respect the Jewish law. He's telling people to go against Moses. He is an apostate. He must be stopped. 
And as is the case with many festivals and holidays in the Jewish religion, the Jews from around the Mediterranean would all find themselves in Jerusalem. So those very Jews from Ephesus in Asia were there in the temple when Paul was making that vow. Of course, the irony is that he's making a vow to show that he's pure, but they're going to accuse him of defilement. Paul was targeted, targeted from hundreds of miles away. This teaches us that persecution often begins when people are pegged. There's like a target on their backs. Paul even said this to the elders in Ephesus in chapter 20, when he talked about how he served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. They had been plotting to kill him because he was taking people away from the synagogues and he was saying that Jesus is Lord. Paul was a marked man. In some countries right now, your brothers and sisters are marked men and women. We take that for granted. We sit very comfortably here. I understand it's warm. But really, compared to what our brothers and sisters are going through, this is luxury. We, we don't have the threat that someone's going to shut this down because we're worshiping Jesus. But we have, even today, around the world, in hostile environments, Christians who are pegged, Christians who are targeted, who have to meet underground, who have to meet secretly because of fear of authorities. And wherever they go, they risk their lives. But the encouragement for Paul is the same encouragement for our brothers and sisters around the world. And that is to suffer this way is to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 11, we find that Jesus was also targeted. And I won't read the whole thing for sake of time. But it says, just just hear what I read to you in verse 50 of John 11 to 53. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest, that's Caiaphas, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And now listen to verse 53 of John 11. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus was targeted. Paul was targeted. But remember, Paul counted it a privilege to be identified with Christ in this way. That was his motive to press on. After targeting comes broadcasting. Paul's presence in the temple creates a riot. And why? Look at verse 28a. As soon as these Jews of Israel, who've been of, of Ephesus, I'm sorry, of, of Asia, as soon as these Jews of Asia saw Paul, the first thing they do in the midst of the temple, imagine a ceremony even like this, where you're expected to pray and worship and make sacrifices and vows But you see someone walk in their room that's been targeted and someone sitting in a pew stands up and yells. That would cause quite a distraction, wouldn't it? And that's what's happening here. And they point at him and they say, there he is. It says in verse 28, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man. They're calling on the Jews who live in Israel to join them in their target of Paul. So what was their target? They want others to also target. They broadcast the net. They spread 
their accusations and their hatred, and they want other people to join in in their attack against Paul. You see, brothers and sisters, persecution is not always done in secret. Often it's broadcast. Like today, a a wanted poster, an online screed, a blog or a video meant to attack a person or people group. They broadcast their hostility far and wide, even in the midst of the temple of God. But just like Paul was targeted and Jesus was targeted, so Paul Paul's target was broadcast, the same happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark 15, when Jesus was on trial, and it says that there was a feast where the governor would release a prisoner for whom they asked, and among them was Barabbas. You probably know the story very well. The crowd came up to Pilate and asked him what he, what he could do, and he answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But it says in verse 11 of Mark 15, But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. So Jesus was the target of the chief priests. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd, broadcasting their hatred so more people would join in. And likewise, Paul was the target of the Jews in Asia. But the Jews in Asia stirred up the Jews of Israel so they can join in in their hatred of Paul. Don't we see that today? Enemies are really good at stirring up crowds against their opponents. Their political opponents, their ideological opponents. And we're so used to this in our country. Smear campaigns. And it happens around the world against Christians as well. And we see this even in our own society. I mentioned earlier how we're comfortable. But you've got to have your head in the sand if you don't realize that Christians are slowly being targeted as well. We're being accused just for holding a a biblical perspective on issues. We're being accused of being narrow-minded, hateful, bigoted, homophobic, and so on. And little by little, this message is being broadcast. And the goal of those who broadcast that message is that other people would come to believe those lies about followers of Jesus Christ. We should expect this and not be surprised. Lies about Paul were broadcast. Lies about Jesus were broadcast. But once again, Paul found it a privilege to suffer for the cause of Christ. And I ask, do you count that a privilege as well? Targeting, broadcasting, accusing. There's content to what's being broadcast. What are the accusations? Look at the end of verse 28 into verse 29. After they said, men of Israel, here he is. They say, this is the one who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So what is the content of their broadcast? There's two main accusations. Number one. And look at how it's worded. Paul is teaching, quote, everyone everywhere. Does that sound familiar? Do we, do we tend to embellish when we want to paint a picture of someone? You know, as, as a teacher, when I would teach about standardized tests, I'd always say, look out for words like all and every, because the answer choice is probably wrong. 
They're saying that Paul is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the law. They're embellishing their case. And then they also say he's teaching against this place. What's this place? It's the temple. To speak against the temple is to speak against God. The temple of the Jews was the place where God's presence dwelt among his people. And if you dared said anything against the temple, you were a blasphemer. So they're accusing Paul of blasphemy and of teaching that blasphemy to others. And not just others, but everyone, everywhere. And the second accusation is that he's defiled the temple. He's brought something dirty where it does not belong. And what are they accusing him of doing specifically? Of bringing a Greek, bringing an Ephesian, a Gentile, into the temple. His name was Trophimus. They've seen Paul with Gentiles. They've seen Paul in the temple. They haven't seen the Gentile in the temple, but they might as well accuse him anyway. Because that's what happens in hostile environments. As Howard Marshall points out the irony here, Paul is in the middle of performing a ceremony to demonstrate his cleanliness. And it's within that ceremony that they're accusing him of defiling the temple. Do not expect reasonableness in hostile environments. Do not expect that you could argue your case. In hostile environments, the way that hatred seethes in the hearts of the people is this. Destroy your opponent at all costs. So why did they say he defiled the temple? That he brought a Gentile into the sanctuary? This did not happen. This is a lie. But I just want to, like, sort of a commercial here. Notice how Luke reports the reason behind that. Verse 29, Luke says, Luke is the writer of Acts. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So, on one hand... You have those who are hostile against Paul, seething with anger, embellishing their case, making up lies. And then you have Luke simply explaining, here's why they lied. They lied because they made a a supposition. They, They saw Paul with Trophimus. They assumed he brought him in the temple. Who's the reasonable one here? It's Luke. And what that says to me, again, sort of a commercial break, but what that says to me is that even when your opponents are hostile and bitter and seething with anger and using outlandish arguments and attacks, we don't need to borrow from them. We can be the reasonable ones. We can be the mild-mannered ones. Luke shows us that in verse 29 by explaining and not even imputing to them the, the worst motives which they probably have. The Bible tells us that love hopes all things, believes all things. If anyone's going to bring reasonableness into a hostile environment, it's Christians. So brothers and sisters, when you listen to things and hear things and accusations against Christians and the most bombastic arguments that there could be against our faith, you do not have to fight fire with fire. You do not have to lower your standard to worldliness and use awful arguments and embellished statistics to try to make your case. No, the Christian faith can stand as it is. And you and I can be loving, gracious, mild-mannered, and temperate people, even in the midst of a hostile environment. Now, going back to the text at hand, what was so wrong about bringing a Gentile into the temple? That's foreign to us, right? Because we grew up in churches like this where anybody can come. 
But in the temple, there was a lot of division. The, the priests were separated from the common people. Men were separated from women. And Jews were separated from Gentiles. Josephus tells us that around the sanctuary of the temple was a four and a half foot wall. Around this wall were guards. And there was an inscription on the wall that read, Let no foreigner enter within the screen and enclosure surrounding the sanctuary with this warning. Whosoever is taken, so doing will be the cause that death overtaketh him. Foreigners were not allowed in the sanctuary of the temple under pain of death. Imagine that. A four and a half foot wall in the midst of a hostile environment. A wall of hostility. Sound familiar? And it separated Jews from Gentiles. Did Paul bring Trophimus into that sanctuary knowing the death penalty? Absolutely not. Is there evidence that Paul did that? Absolutely not. So what is this but a false accusation? Well, just like Paul was falsely accused, you know who else was falsely accused? Our Lord Jesus. In Mark 14, it says in verse 56, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And we could probably list all the things they said about Jesus. That Jesus was a blasphemer. That Jesus spoke against the temple. Think about that. Paul was accused of speaking against the temple. Jesus was, was accused of speaking against the temple. The solidarity with Paul. Brothers and sisters. Jesus tells us this. Blessed are you when people falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. The reason that you and I do not need to lower our standards and violate God's word in the way we respond to false accusations is because we can count it a privilege. To suffer with Christ. Listen, I know it's hard to obey Matthew 5. When people utter evil and accusations against you, you probably don't first think, Oh, I'm blessed. Our instinct is to fight back, to insult, to revile. And all I would say is remember the Lord Jesus and remember his words. Targeting, broadcasting, Accusing, mobbing. Verse 30 to 32. Then all the city was stirred up, and people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He had at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. There was no reasoning out of this, as you see. It began with targets. The targeting was broadcast. The accusations were made. People joined in, and there was a frenzy, a mob. And what happens with mobs? It gets violent and chaotic, and that's exactly what happened. Paul is physically dragged out of the temple. Behind him, the gates were shut, shut closed, so he cannot enter in again. 
Remember the exclusivity of this temple. He was being beaten, physically beaten, for these false accusations. Now, Paul's been in this situation before, but it doesn't mean this is not tragic injustice. It certainly is. Think about it. The temple of God. The temple of God is a place that is meant to convey God's presence. In God's presence, there's supposed to be peace and joy, right? This is a place where peace offerings were made. And yet the temple in Jerusalem had become an epicenter of hostility. So much so that a man, a Jewish man like Paul, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, could be in the middle of completing a vow and be beaten and dragged and shut out of the temple. You know who else was beat? The Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ spit upon the king of kings his beard ripped off of his face the lord jesus a cat of nine tails being whipped across his back taking out flesh before the next blow a mob surrounded the lord jesus a mob surrounded paul when paul is dragged out of the temple This is not an insignificant thing. F.F. Bruce says this, For Luke himself, this may have been the moment when the Jerusalem temple ceased to fill the honorable role that was ascribed to it in history. The exclusion of God's message and messenger from the house once called by his name sealed its doom. And it was now ripe for the destruction which Jesus had predicted for it many years before. Why was the temple destroyed? It rejected God. The very God who founded the temple, who oversaw the building of the temple, who told his people to build it, was shut out when Paul was shut out because they rejected the only message that can bring us into a right relationship with God, the gospel. And so when Paul's dragged out, just think in your mind's eye, when those, when those gates shut behind him, on one hand, it, yeah, it is really sad. Paul cannot re-enter. But it's also a, a symbol of the judgment that's going to come on that temple. Because it, it has ceased to do its job. This is a sad scene. The doors are shut. The temple becomes a place of exclusion. The place of God's presence is locked. Imagine wanting to be in God's presence, but you can't because the doors are locked. And Paul is beaten and mobbed. Now, as our text sort of comes to a close, we find the intervention of authorities. Once again, the parallels are striking. Just as the Jews falsely accused Jesus only to send him off into Roman custody. So the Jews are falsely accusing Paul, only to send him off into Roman custody. Not far from the temple, actually overlooking the temple, were some soldiers that were stationed so they can see what's happening. That's why the centurion and the the cohort, the tribune, is able to come so quickly and sort of mitigate the violence of the mob. Verse 33 tells us that the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Bound with two chains. Remember, 
a few episodes ago, Agabus showing Paul with his belt, if you go to Jerusalem, you will be bound. This is a fulfillment of that prophecy. When Luke says two chains, he doesn't mean necessarily that that Paul literally has two chains and that's all he means. He means that he's chained to two soldiers, two guards, two muscular, well-dressed guards to signify that there is no escape. Paul is now completely at the mercy of Rome. His freedom is gone. But it's an honor for him to suffer like Christ. And as the text ends in verse 34 to 36, we find yet another very familiar scene. As he is chained to these two guards, and the tribune's trying to make sense. Okay, what happened? What happened? What happened? And someone's shouting this, and someone's shouting that. He can't make any sense of it. It's too chaotic. So he just takes Paul and brings him to the barracks. The soldiers carry him away. Why do they have to carry him away? Well, it tells us in verse 35, when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying, away with him. Does away with him also sound familiar? Away with him. John chapter 19, verse 12 to 16. Have your mind's eye fixed on Jesus as I read this. It says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Just as Paul was ushered out at the sounds of a way with him, so was Jesus ushered out at those very sounds. And we look at that and we we should be sad. It is tragic to see that the world would reject God in flesh. And in turn, the world would reject his followers. But what kept Paul going was his faith in Christ. And that by suffering in this way, he experienced more union with Christ, more solidarity with Christ than any of us could imagine. Remember what he said in Philippians 3. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Thus, this portion of the episode concludes with Paul bound and beaten and held in custody of the same soldiers that killed his Lord, the one with whom Paul delighted. So what's the application for us today? Well, brothers and sisters, it is... A privilege to suffer. And I understand, like I said earlier, we're not necessarily going to suffer in the same way that Paul and Jesus did. We could, we don't know. But as the Bible promises, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There will be some form of being ostracized, marginalized, mocked, insulted for the cause of Christ. 
And so as we think of the hostile environments in this world, I want to encourage you that there is an environment of peace that is coming. We can move on to the next slide. Brothers and sisters, rejoice for an environment of perfect peace is promised. Yes, Paul was bound physically, but as we're going to sing in a, in a little while, he was also bound for the promised land. And they may take away our freedoms in, in the 60, 70, 80, 90 years they give us on earth, but we will enjoy an eternity in God's presence. What can motivate us then to stand strong when we suffer attack, when we are falsely accused, when we are targeted and accusations are broadcast? As Tertullian, the church father, said in the second century, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Oftentimes we read the Bible, there's a paradox, right? Because in this environment that God is creating, this new kingdom, this new Jerusalem, God creates life through death. And he gives joy through suffering and peace through hostility. And I know that doesn't make sense. How can there be peace through hostility? But it's only when the gospel goes forward into hostile environments that God can transform it into a place of peace and righteousness and joy. Paul says this of himself in Galatians 2. You know the verse where he says, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He has life, but he had to die to find his life. Even Hebrews tells us that discipline, which seems very unpleasant at the time, brings forth the peaceful fruit of righteousness. How can suffering bring righteousness? Jesus even told us in John 12, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It is a paradox, my brothers and sisters, but we must die in order to live. Now, I don't suggest that you have to look for suffering or look for physical pain. But what I mean is this, and what Jesus means is this, is that we don't count our life so dear that we would run away from all hostility so as to save our physical life and wind up losing eternal life. But rather, through undergoing whatever suffering God may bring us through, by faith, we will find that God's promises are true, that He is with us in that suffering, and that by denying ourselves, we find the life that God has given us through Christ. And so when you lay down your life, you find it. So I pray that we, we would determine to be people of peace in the midst of hostility. Think of places you might know, situations you might be involved in even now that are rather unpeaceful, hostile. Are you the peace? You who, who come here every Sunday and experience the benediction at the end, peace be with you, who know the peace that you have with God because Christ died for your sins who know the peace that we have with one another and the peace that passes all understanding. Are we bringing that peace wherever we go? That's what Paul shows us here. That he was willing to give up his life so that others can find that peace. Peace with God gives us peace with men. And what can motivate us 
to take such risks. What motivates us is that we look forward to a kingdom of perfect peace. We look forward to a place that will be brought to us by the Prince of Peace. And it is vastly different than what we see in our text today. Would you look with me in two texts as we close? The first one is Ephesians 2, 11 to 18. As I read Ephesians 2, 11 to 18, brothers and sisters, please keep in mind the episode before us today. Please keep in mind the temple that excluded the Gentiles from the Jews. Please keep in mind that wall of hostility that said anyone who enters will be killed. And consider those as I read these verses. Ephesians 2, 11 to 18. Therefore remember... That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Brothers and sisters, the temple has been destroyed. Access to the throne of God has been opened up. And there no longer is a wall of hostility. By faith in Christ, you and I can access God the Father. By faith in Christ, there is only one way to access God the Father. And the wall is broken down and will never be built again. Christ is our peace. If you don't know the peace of God, you are far off. You are away from God's presence. And all you can expect is God's justice and wrath for your sin. But just as Christ has preached peace to those who are far off, so does Paul and so do I. That by the suffering and death of our perfect Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who made atonement for sinners like us and rose again the third day by turning from your sin and trusting in him, you can have peace with God. You will not be shut out from his presence. The wall is broken down and there's nothing you can do, no work you can perform, no money you can give that can give you access because Christ alone is our access. If you have that, then you have peace. And you can take that peace with you in any hostile environment this world can throw your way. Praise God, the wall is broken down. Finally, please turn to Revelation 21. I want to remind you all, for those who are in Christ, where we are headed. Because this world 
and all the wickedness and unbelief and evil is not all there is. There is a better world coming. And it's called the New Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? The New Jerusalem. The redeemed world. The the new heavens and the new earth. And in Revelation, John has a vision of what it's going to look like. And again, as I read it, have your mind's eye back in our text of what Paul saw when, when he was dragged out of the temple and the gates were shut behind him. I want to read the whole chapter, but for sake of time, I'll just read verse 9 to 14, then skip to verse 22, 27. Revelation 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed And on the east, three gates. And on the north, three gates. And on the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So, like the old Jerusalem, has many gates. Now look at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord. The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. Brothers and sisters, when you see nations in Revelation, it means Gentiles. It means everyone, not just Jews. All of us are in this. Verse 24. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And look at this. And the gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. In other words, the gates will never shut. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. How do we get there? By being written in the Lamb's book of life. Not by your ethnicity, Jew, Gentile, not by your good works, but purely by grace. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, rejoice, for your names are written in heaven. And come what may, whatever hostility you might have to endure, keep your eyes on the new Jerusalem, where you will have perfect access to Jesus Christ, and the gates will never shut. Let's pray.